0: Happy Labor Day weekend. Hope you are enjoying it. Um, this morning, we're going to be continuing in our series uh, called That You May Know. We'll be picking up pretty much right where we left off last week uh, in the book of Luke, chapter 9. Book of Luke, chapter 9. We'll be picking up in verse 7 and going all the way through verse 22. And the title of today's sermon is based off of the last verse that's in the passage today, in which Jesus asks his own disciples, Who do you think I am? And that's today's main phrase. Who do you think I am? And that logically flows from the phrase, That you may know. Luke made it a point at the outset of writing his letter to Theophilus, saying, I'm writing these things to you, Theophilus, that you may know with certainty the things you've been taught. And now that Theophilus and we ourselves have been told about eight chapters worth of things that Luke has compiled in his investigations, we come to a point of response. After eight chapters, we finally arrive at the question, so who do you say Jesus is? And it's really something that everyone who hears about Jesus must do, respond somehow. It, it might be If if you're a militant atheist, or a devout Christian, or anywhere in between, uh, you will respond to the person and work of Jesus in one way. It might be rejection, it might be worship, but there's always a response. And some people will say Jesus was a historic figure, but will disagree that he was God in the flesh. Others will say he's an excellent teacher whose principles helped shape the world we live in today. And still, others would gladly throw him into the same category as Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. Spoilers, kids. Uh, there are plenty who would call Jesus the Messiah, and yet among these, there, there are people who are uh, living in great variation. There's a confession that Jesus is the Messiah, but people deny the cross as little more than a way that we can follow Jesus' example in loving sacrifice. It's more than that. And there are people who confess that he's the righteous one, and yet may be living as if they're sinless, as if his righteousness wasn't given to them, that they can live and do things, and that the problem is with everybody else and not themselves. Or we confess him as king, and we live as if his commands are little more than good suggestions to live a better life. The point is that there are many answers that we see and hear today regarding the question, who do you say I am? And it's a question that Christians must answer often, if not daily. So that's what I want to lead us in doing this morning as we look at this question. We, like Theophilus, have read of the things that Jesus has said and done, and Luke wants us, like Theophilus, to answer Jesus' question for ourselves. Just like the rest of his disciples. So, I believe that one thing that can help us as we read scripture is to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples whenever we have dialogues like this. When Jesus asked them the question, I want us to believe, see, and believe that Jesus is asking us the same question. We believe here at Timberline that when the scripture is preached, God is at work. So, even right now, his spirit is working in our hearts and our minds. And I believe that as we approach this passage, he is asking each one of us the question he asked thousands of years ago, who do you say I am? I'm a little echoey, aren't I? (laughs) Thanks, Luke. (laughs) So let's stand and read this passage, Luke 9, 7 through 22. This isn't a marathon standing session. If you do get tired, please feel free to sit down and we'll get started. Chapter 9, verses 7 through 22. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. This is the apostles returning to Jesus. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You can be seated. Now, as we join up with the disciples and receive this question from Jesus, I'd like to take a special note of what Jesus did before he asked this question to the disciples. Verse 18 says it happened that he was praying alone. And I think he was likely praying to his father for the impending exchange, for the minds and the hearts of his disciples to be open to know the truth of his identity. Scripture says today that he also intercedes for us on our behalf today, even now, 2,000 years later. So before we jump in and receive his question, who do you say I am? Let's join him in prayer. God, we come before you and we see your question, who do you say I am? And there are so many things we can say. God, there are so many ways that we could answer that question to who you are. And many of them are great and bring you glory and praise. And others are a bit misinformed. Or God, they come from false expectations or false histories. God, I pray that as we come before you to answer this question, you would open our hearts and our minds that our confession of who you are would ring true. God, that you would renew, um, give a fresh understanding of who you are to people whose relationships with you have plateaued. God, that you would stir in us the wonder of the cross. And God, that you would stir in us also the power, um, the encouragement, the courage, the strength, for us to pick up our crosses and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in your bulletin, you'll see that we're going to divide this passage into four parts, and uh, they'll provide a bit of a roadmap for us today. Um, there's plenty of room, I hope, for you to write under those, so feel free to scribble around if, if that's your thing. Um, but part one is where we see the question, first posed by Herod, And that's verses 7 to 9. Part 2 is where Jesus performs a miracle, feeding the 5,000 people. And that's verses 10 through 17. And then part 3 is when the disciples, for the first time in Luke's gospel, call Jesus the Messiah. And then finally, part 4 is when Jesus answers the question himself. So that's good. We aren't aren't just getting this answer from fallible men, from disciples, from the general public, from Herod. We're getting this from Jesus. Good news. So part one, the question posed. It's good to establish a bit of context regarding the question asked in the initial answers given. Last week, we read in verses one through six that Jesus sent the 12 disciples on a mission. They were given two tasks. First, Heal and cast out demons. Second, proclaim the kingdom of God. Pretty easy, right? I mean, everyone casts out demons every day, right? I mean, that's part of the Christian life. That's what we do before breakfast. <laughs> no? <laughs> okay, it's a bit special. But Jesus sends them out into this, um, this mission, and as they go out, they don't go out on their own power and authority. On whose power and authority do they go out in? Jesus. Kids, write that down. They go out in Jesus' power and authority, not their own. And I suppose that it would make news in any neighborhood if demons were being cast out and people were being healed of lifelong illnesses. If it was happening to your next, day, next door neighbor, I'm sure your neighborhood would think about it pretty uh, quickly. They'd hear about it. Um, but this is nothing that's mundane. These, these acts of the kingdom power were not contained even to small one, one small neighborhood. They were everywhere. We read in uh, verse 6 that they went through villages, plural, multiple villages, and they did this everywhere they went. So if you've ever used Facebook, or any type of social media, uh, perhaps that if this were to happen in our time, it would make the trending topics, right? There's a little list of things that everybody in the world is just interested in, these things. Right now, you might see the ice bucket challenge that is sweeping the nation. You might see the, uh, the stories of ISIS and the atrocities they're committing. You might see the stories of Ferguson and the chaos that has erupted there. But in this time, the trending news was this strange story of power going out. If Facebook existed in Jesus' time, the works that he and his disciples would have done would have made the top. So we know this because the reports of these deeds were not contained in the villages. They made them all the way to Herod, the Tetrarch himself, who is the ruler of Galilee and Perea. He's a big guy. Imagine him, maybe, 21st century Herod, waking up, getting his morning coffee, got to check out the, the Facebook, what, what's going on here? And then he sees the prophet that Herod killed back to life. Ooh, I got to click that one. <laughs> Luke 9, 7 says that he was perplexed. And he decided to do some research. Just who is this guy? The first group, the first thing that people said was John the Baptist. And though Luke does not speak much about John the Baptist and Herod, in the book of Mark, we read an account of who John is and what happened to him. You could write down Mark six fourteen 14 uh, to read later, and that'll give you a bit more insight. But Luke does tell us that Herod had John the Baptist killed. He was a selfish ruler, um, So for any ruler like this, any news saying that the prophet you killed coming back to life would probably be problematic. Could you imagine, maybe, if uh, suddenly news reports of Osama bin Laden came back to life and uh, was running around in the Middle East? We would have a big issue with that. So Herod, hearing this report, would likewise have a big issue. The second answer that Herod heard was that Jesus was the prophet Elijah. That seems a bit random. Why would the name Elijah be thrown out? I mean, there are so many prophets. Why not Moses? Why not Daniel? Why not Isaiah? Why Elijah? The name isn't just a random thing. It's actually tied really close to a nationwide expectation of the Messiah to come. In the last two verses, in the last book of the Old Testament, we read these words in Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the people did not know precisely when the Messiah was coming, but they did know that before the Messiah came to establish his rightful rule, Elijah would come. So to Herod, hearing that people were expecting the imminent end to his reign was also a bit problematic. Then there's the third answer that the people probably did not comfort him with either, a vague mention of one of the prophets of old, implied in a strong and it, it implied a strong and powerful presence. But there is an interesting thing to note here. Although these answers to Herod's inquiry troubled him and perplexed him, they did not satisfy him. He was not satisfied with these answers. We read that he sought to see him. Okay, you're telling me he's John the Baptist, you're telling me he's Elijah, you're telling me he's a prophet. I want to see him. I want to see this Jesus and figure out just who he really is. So for now, Luke leaves Herod alone with his thoughts and continues on and lists a miracle that Jesus performed. So when I first read this passage, I was a bit surprised Uh, if you have an Oreo cookie, for example, you have the Oreo chocolate piece number one, which is who is Jesus? And then you have chocolate piece number two, who is Jesus? And then you have the cream filling, which is this miracle. Well, what's the miracle for? I mean, it's great, it looks good, it tastes good, but why on earth did Luke interrupt the question of who is Jesus with a miracle? That seems a bit odd, just to throw a random miracle in there until you realize that miracles were not done or written down just because. Every miracle that Jesus did was to prove a point, and every recording of Jesus' miracles was to prove a point. So what point is Luke trying to make here? Let's read verses 12 through 17 again. 12 through 17. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go in the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said, Give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. There were about 5,000 men. He has them sit down, says a blessing, Breaks the food, passes it out, bam, problem solved. 5,000 fed. Now, to give a bit of perspective, we tend to gloss over numbers. Let us try to imagine what it would look like if the collective student bodies of Olympia High School, North Thurston High School, River Ridge High School, and Timberline High School were all coming here to eat a potluck with us. And we forgot the food, <laughs> except someone brought like a few egg McMuffins. We'd be in trouble, right? We, very few of us can s- comprehend what it would take for one person to single-handedly feed 5,000. It's crazy. But as huge as these numbers are and as big as this miracle is, we can't let it distract us from the meaning of the miracle. Sometimes we can get caught up in this huge size and this is a wondrous thing that's done, but then we kind of miss the point of the miracle. So what is that point? Well, think with me here. Where else have we read of something like this before? Feeding of a multitude of people. I mean, maybe in the Old Testament? Where else have we read about a massive group of people In a desolate place, receiving heaven-blessed miracle bread, and the number 12. Those are all very important. They aren't written there just because. The answer would be way back, way, 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 way back, in Exodus 16, when Yahweh led 12 tribes of Israel out into a desolate wilderness And fed them miracle bread from heaven. (laughs) So Jesus in performing this miracle is not just feeding people, he's trying to prove a point. He is trying to prove a point that he is now standing in the place of Yahweh, leading and providing for his people. That's the point. So when we consider Luke writing about who is Jesus, this parable, this not parable, this miracle fits perfectly. Jesus is proving with a miracle, answering our question, who is Jesus, with a very solid answer, the Messiah, the one who stands in the place of God to lead and provide for his people. It's a pretty awesome thing. But now that we have the purpose of the miracle, there are many, many, many things we can say about this miracle. We're going to move on to how the disciples handle this. What do they say about it? Let's reread verses 18 through 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds that I just fed say I am? They answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has arisen. And then he said to them, who do you say I am? So something peculiar happens. Jesus asks the disciples the question of what the people think of him, and this isn't just to get a poll to see how well he's doing in his public ministry. I mean, he just fed 5,000 people. I'm sure that they're pleased with him. He wants to know something more. What are these people saying about me and my identity? And this is something that the disciples answer. And we, say, we see the same three, three answers that Herod receives. That's not a mistake. That's not just a coincidence. These are the three most uh, prevalent answers. But Jesus is not satisfied with these answers, and this, the disciples know better also. They know that Jesus is not his late cousin, they know that he isn't Elijah, since Jesus himself says in Matthew eleven fourteen, if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is the Elijah who is to come. And later on in Luke 16, we'll read that Jesus said this, the law and prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. So he's saying the law and the prophets, Old Testament right here, John is the last prophet. From there on, the gospel and the kingdom of God is preached, which is what Jesus and his disciples are doing. So they all know that these three answers are inadequate. So then he says, you know better, disciples, who do you say I am? You are the Christ. And then Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. What? Did I miss something here? I mean, this is, this is where the proverbial record screeches to a halt. You know, the music is playing, and who do you say I am? You're the Christ. Well, tell no one. Excuse me? Hold the phone. Let me get this straight. You ask the disciples what the people are saying. You all know that the people are wrong. The disciples get the answer right, and you tell them to be quiet about it? I mean, why? If the answer is right, if Jesus is indeed the Christ of God, a.k.a. the Messiah, why would he tell them to tell no one? The language here is pretty strong. If you look at the word strictly charged, that can also be translated as "threaten." Jesus is meaning serious business when he tells them this. So Jesus, if everyone is wrong, wouldn't you want some clarity? Wouldn't you want people to know? I mean, our mission today is to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, the Savior. Why on earth would he tell his disciples to be quiet? And this really, when I was reading this, I just got stuck. But when we read the next verse, we will read the explanation that Jesus gives for telling them to be silent. I'll read them one more time. Verse 21, And he strictly charged and commanded them, To tell this to no one, saying, so this word saying means whatever he says next is more or less the content and the reasoning of why he's telling them not to talk. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Something that could help us understand this rebuke a little bit more would be that the title Messiah, as it was understood before the cross, Is quite different from how we understand the word Messiah after the cross. In the culture and time of Jesus, Messiah was a big, powerful king. He didn't die, he wasn't rejected. This is a strange thing. And Jesus uses the word Son of Man. He doesn't use that just because, Son of Man is there for a reason. And the words, the image that the Son of Man invoked in people came from Daniel 7. You could scribble that down and read that. Um, I'll read it for us. This is what people thought when they heard the word Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that won't be destroyed. Well, that sounds very triumphant, doesn't it? That sounds glorious. And it was this type of dominating, kingdom-ruling, nation-subduing Messiah that people were expecting. The great misunderstanding of most of the Jewish people concerning the Messiah was that they were awaiting a geopolitical savior. Their biggest issue was not necessarily that Jesus would save them from their sins, but that the Messiah would save them from Rome. If you look into historical records or whatever, there's plenty of accounts that give that that are given that tell us that Rome's oppression of the people of Israel was severe. And the people had had enough of it. And they were very much looking forward to this Messiah that would come and turn Rome into little more than a parking lot. It was this prevailing understanding of the Messiah that led the disciples to bicker about who sat next to Jesus in Mark chapter 10. Who's going to sit? I'm going to sit. No, I'm going to sit next to him. Listen, when he's king, I'm going to sit next to him. You know what? If you get your mom to ask him to like, have one of us sit next to him, maybe, maybe that will work out. This is the understanding that led the crowds in John 6 to try and force Jesus to be king. And he fled them. This is the understanding that the Pharisees had when they caught wind of Jesus' death talk, and they said in John 12, we heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And it is this type of view that Peter had when he confronted Jesus. In Matthew 16, just after Matthew gives the same account that we read today of him asking Uh, the disciples, who he is. We read the following in Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. Does Peter really understand who Jesus is? Doesn't look like it. But he, Jesus, turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Whew. Jesus was very serious about who he was and making sure his disciples knew. His rebukes sounded pretty harsh. So Jesus brings to the disciples' minds the great son of man, the triumphant ruler, and he says he must suffer, he must die, he must rise again. Essentially, he's taking this son of man in Daniel 7 and saying, you know this guy? He is one and the same with the suffering servant that we are reading about in Isaiah 53. They're the same people, same person. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The Son of Man will die for your sin. But Isaiah also speaks of the resurrection, saying when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper his hand. The Son of Man who died will rise. It's masterful how Jesus handles this. And as he explains why they are to be silent, we see that the identity of Jesus is most clarified when it is set up against the gospel of Jesus. The identity of Jesus is most clear when it's set up to the gospel of Jesus. If you take this Jesus and remove him from the gospel, you won't come up with an accurate view. So the disciples understanding of the Messiah was complete. Well, it was correct, but it wasn't necessarily complete. Another little bit of evidence that the disciples didn't really get is that when Jesus had been crucified and buried, the disciples were not really getting the house ready for a party on Sunday. They were afraid. They were huddled together, and they thought it was all over. But then, as Luke writes of Jesus' resurrection, We see that he appears to the disciples, and he says the following, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, It is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Even when he rose from the dead, the disciples still needed the gospel to understand who Jesus was. And so do we. Because even on this side of the cross, 2,000 years later, we can still acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah and yet forget what he came to do and how that applies to our own lives. Like the disciples, we need to hold our own understanding of who Jesus is up to the light of the gospel. If we're not careful, we, like the disciples, can end up trusting the Christ of our expectations rather than the Christ of the gospel. There are some people who say that God would never send anyone to hell. He's a loving God. I mean, he would never send anyone to hell. I mean, he knows we're trying very hard, and he's at peace with everyone, even in their sin. And that's not the Christ of the gospel. In the gospel, we see a cross, a very real, horrifying display of the wages of sin, and we see a perfect, holy God who is justified in sending sinners to hell. We also see the deepest love of God expressed in Jesus, the suffering Messiah, who died for us so that we could be covered by his righteousness and live. The Christ of the gospel didn't come so that we could, who were good people, could live a better life. He came so that we, who were his enemies, could live. Period. Period. There are other testimonies of people I've heard, and I've experienced this myself, who either fell away from the faith or came very close to falling away from the faith because some type of suffering or hardship entered their life. They assumed that the Messiah was someone who would protect us from suffering and difficulty. They assumed that the Messiah would make life easy for us. I mean, he gives us strength and power and peace. Life is easy then, right? But if you look at this passage and take a sneak peek into the next passage that's going to be showing up in our series, you'll see that those who confess a cross-bearing Christ will live a cross-driven life, and that includes suffering. Then there's people who go about their day in perpetual fear and anxiety. They know that life is just out of control, and they're anxious, and quite possibly because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah— who came to grant them both stability and control over their lives. The Messiah came to help me get my life together and make me stay on top of things. But the Christ of the gospel graciously grants us neither stability nor control. He grants us that we cling to him. And the list can go on and on. So we come back to the question, and I hope you've been thinking about it. It's quite possibly the most important question you will ever answer. Who do you say Jesus is? How do you answer this? In what ways do you see yourself understanding this truth about who Jesus is? In what ways is he revealing to you even now that maybe you need to hold your understanding of him up to the gospel? In what ways is your life saying who Jesus, answering the question who is Jesus? We have a few points of application, and not all of them are in your bulletins, but here they are. First, Jesus is zealous to be known as he is, not who we might think he is, and he has given us all that we need to know him. Amen? He doesn't say, who am I? You're on your own. If he did not care about how we know him, he would have said, okay, disciples, you say I'm the Christ. Tell everyone, I don't care what you mean by Christ. I don't care what you mean by Messiah. Just get my name out there. Instead, he says, you have a faulty misunderstanding of who the Messiah is, who I am. Don't tell people I'm the Messiah. And they would find out later at the cross and at the resurrection when he would open their minds to understand the scriptures. Second of all, he, he, first, he gives us the word, All of his son of man talk and everything that he said was not just out of the blue. He was quoting scripture. He was backing it up with countless prophecies of the Old Testament. And second, he gives us his spirit. He gives us our spirit to open our minds to understand the word. So I'm going to put it a little bit bluntly, just a little bit, but it is true. If you have no interest in reading scripture, then you have no interest in truly knowing Jesus. If you do not have any interest in reading scripture, you are not interested in who Jesus is, really. There are some people who will say, you know what, I don't understand this Bible stuff. I didn't go to seminary, so I don't really want to read it. The words are too tough. I just want to close my Bible, set it down here, and God, tell me who you are. You see a contradiction here? Jesus, I do not want to know who you are, but please tell me, who are you? It's a very strange contradiction. He's given us his word so we can know him fully. And we can. So a point of application would be read. Read not just to discover a a Messiah who can apply all these truths to your life and make it better, Read to know who he is as he says he is so that you can worship him as he is and live your life for him as he is. Second point of application, our heart's confession of who Jesus is has direct implications for how we live our lives, and how we live our lives gives us insight into who we think Jesus is a little bit confusing. <laughs> the way I live my life will show people and myself who I believe Jesus is, and who I believe Jesus is will have direct Im- impact into how I live my life. The disciples believe that Jesus was the Messiah who would establish a kingdom and give them lots of stuff. Therefore, they acted in such a way where they bickered about who is sitting closer to Jesus and who is the greatest and I'm the great. Well, Jesus is greatest. I'll be second greatest. That's how they lived because their confession about Jesus, although correct, yes, he is the Messiah, was a bit faulty. They had a wrong expectation. And then our third point of application is one of Immediate practicality. Uh, I'm going to have, I didn't tell Steph about this, but uh, I'm going to have Steph come up. Uh, She'll play a little bit. And I just want us to take a moment um, to bow our heads. And if we haven't already, bring ourselves before Jesus and have this conversation with him. Who do you think, who do you say I am? So let's bow our heads. There's nothing amazing to look at right now. If fireworks go off, you'll know. Who do you say Jesus is? This is a time to have this conversation with him. Uh, This is also not a time to say, okay, I'm going to leave all my problems at the door. We want you to bring your problems in with you and place them before Jesus and say, Jesus, where I'm at right now, what I'm going through right now, I want to know who you are in all of it. So, I will uh, let us do that for a few moments, and then I'll close us in prayer. Who do you say I am? Jesus, we confess that you are the Son of Man. You've been given everything. To you belong all glory and honor and praise. You are the conquering Messiah who conquered the grave, who works in and through the church to bring people from the kingdom of darkness into your kingdom of light. You are the Son of Man who suffered, was rejected, and was killed. You lived on this earth and walked in the flesh as one of us, perfectly. You were tempted as we were, and you didn't sin. You were reviled, and you were silent. You endured people's anger and misunderstanding and stupidity with compassion and grace, all for a perfect righteousness to be given to us. And in the greatest demonstration of the Father's love, you poured out your life to death on the cross so that we who were dead would live. You are the Son of Man who rose again. You have overcome the world. You are seated on a throne, bestowed with the name above all names, and we worship you and glory in you. For we know that the same power that rose you from the grave is that which is at work in us right now, asking us the question, who do you say I am? And providing us with the glorious answer. God, I pray that the confession of our hearts would answer your spirit. We know that we will see you face to face. Forgive us for when we lose sight of the promised end. Forgive us when we think of you as you are not. Continue to correct us and guide us according to who you are, remind us of the glory that awaits us so that we can pick up our cross and follow you regarding even the most precious things on earth as loss compared to knowing who you are. God, I pray for those in this room who realize they don't have a good understanding of who you are. I pray that that would not discourage them, but encourage them. Give them a fire and a desire to dive into your word and rely on your spirit to learn who you are. God, I pray for those who do not know you, who answer that at best you are a great teacher and at worst you were a myth. God, I pray that you would give them a haunting need to know you. Bring them to life. Continue to show us who you are, we pray in your name. Amen.